maybe this is like Road Warrior versus Mad Max. We've come back a bit more sophisticated. <laughs> we know a bit more, bit, bit of a bigger budget. <laughs> Here's what we've got for you. The first one was rough and ready, just going out on the roads, shooting shit with no safety officers. Now we've got insurance. <laughs> Welcome to season two of Dad Pod. This time with facts. How are you, Charlie? I'm good. It's been a long time. We're back in the saddle, or we're, would you say we're back? We're back in the nappy? No, it doesn't quite work. <laughs> back in the saddle works. Image. It's a great Aerosmith song. It's a great Aerosmith <laughs> song. Season two, uh, season one. We got a lot of great feedback from season one, but I guess we're a little older, a little wiser, and probably a little better slept as yeah. we come into season two. How differently? Did you want to work season two, Charlie? Well, I think, uh, you know, we had time to discuss it. And although we, uh, we we did love the freewheeling nature of season one, we sort of came out of going, are we delivering any information that people can use? <laughs> like a lot of it is anecdotal and that's great. And I think, you know, we want to preserve a little bit of that conversational nature. But we thought maybe we can dig a little deeper. And with the benefit of six months uh, of being dads now where we're not in the midst of the craziness, we can look back at that period and maybe draw out some lessons and some facts that we can deliver to the listeners. Absolutely. And so for the second season, we're basically going to take people on a journey from pretty much conception all the way through to just before baby's born and just try to give as much info as we possibly can that would have really helped us. I mean, there were we, we did fast forward over this part very quickly when we did the first season because basically mm. the babies were there and now we're like, well, what the fuck happens now? Yeah. <laughs> but from the, the dads that uh, and the mums that have been emailing, the, you know, there was a bit of a call of like, well, let's, you know, bit more meat on the bones, please, boys. Yeah, and I also think too, like, uh, we're the true detective of podcasts. Like, <laughs> I'd like to think that each season it's like a different genre, you know. We're going back to the past and then, you know, maybe we'll go into the future in the next series. But... <laughs> We can't be defined by ordinary podcasting standards. It's just not the Vince Vaughan season because it was terrible. <laughs> it was really bad. But the Colin, what's his face? Colin Farrell. Oh, that season was so good. That season was really, really good. Season one and season three, True Detective. Or, or maybe we could think that what are films that have had better sequels than the original? So you'd say like The Godfather 2. Oh, yeah. Arguably, and this is controversial, but Terminator 2, better than Terminator. I'd say Empire Strikes Back, far better 100%. than Star Wars. Star Wars yeah. is dull. They don't. They talk for the first hour and thirty-five minutes, and then there's an X-wing fight, and it's over. Great, a great way to get hits and traffic is for us to bag Star Wars. Let's put this on YouTube yeah, and just brilliant. watch all those rabid Star Wars fans tear us apart for being cucks. I'd say being... Mad Max Two. Now the other night on on the telly, they had Mad Max One and Two back to back. Yeah, and though one is dark, really dark. Two, holy moly. Oh, two's amazing. I mean, two is just fantastic for that one motorbike stunt where that guy does like 40 cartwheels and then there's no CGI involved. He just clips and you see his ankle get caught and he spins forward. That's when you want a doctor, Dr. George Miller, to be your director because there's no time for an ambulance to get to set. Because <laughs> you're at the back of Broken Hill. <laughs> just flinging stuntmen off motorbikes. Yeah. So, so yes, we're, we we're, are the road warrior of podcasts. We're driving the last budget. of the V8 interceptors into the world of podcasts. <laughs> of dadding all the way back to when we saw uh, so episode one we've called two stripes on the stick now what yeah. do you remember when you got the two stripes on the stick charlie 
Yes. Well, Gemma had actually been uh, in Melbourne shooting a commercial and we had, uh, I think we've talked about this in, in season one, but we had uh, done a course of IVF uh, leading up to getting pregnant and because we were just like, well, at our age, you know, we don't know if there's going to be uncertainty, so let's, let, let's do some IVF. So we had a few in the bank and then um, it occurred naturally which is a bit of a surprise to us. So I do remember I was uh, in Sydney, Gemma came back and she said, I've got you a surprise. <laughs> and I was like, great. Uh, I was assuming it was Krispy Kremes. Uh, it turns out it was a baby. <laughs> she, what, she produced the stick out of a bag she, and said, here you go? She produced the stick and said, yeah, we're having a baby. So oh. it was unexpected. It was one of those things where it sort of took me by surprise. But because we had been talking about it for the last however long, you know, leading up to the IVF and doing the IVF, I was wrapped. Obviously, we were, we were both wrapped, but it was just one of those things where it's like, oh, we wanted this to happen. We just didn't expect it to happen like this. Audrey and I were we were going to a business meeting when you work in the industry that we work in, which is uh, you're an actor, you're a screenwriter, you're a producer, you're a podcaster. I work in television. It's a seasonal industry. So you're kind of always on the hustle. About 40% of your time is what are we going to do next? What are we going to yeah. do next? All right, you're basically working on the next thing. So we were on the way to a, a meeting trying to put something together. And she's like, oh, I really need to wee. And this is our old apartment block. And there was, there's a bathroom downstairs at our old apartment block. And so she, I was reversing the car down the driveway. She goes, I'll just pop into the bathroom downstairs. I may as well take this with me. She pulled the pregnancy stick out of her, <laughs> out of her bag because she'd just eaten a bowl of ramen yeah. for lunch. And she's like, I'm going to vomit this up. I'm like, hang oh. on. This is your sake ramen. This is your favorite thing in the world to eat. Why do you want to vomit ramen? Mm. Ah, so she went around in the kind of downstairs, the toilet you use when you're kind of gardening toilet. So it's not the fancy toilet. And she came back, she put it in the bag and in the glove box. And then we got to the meeting. She pulled it out. There were the two stripes. We went, shit, eh? We're five minutes late. And up we went. (laughs) (laughs) We sat down in this meeting. We're trying to have this meeting, the two of us. How was the level of concentration in the meeting? (laughs) A bit distracted. (laughs) Somewhat. But I don't don't know about you, but I immediately was hit with extraordinary excitement, just like yourself, but also massive anxiety. Of course. And that does lead me into that I'm fairly common in the fact that anxiety and fear is a large part of expectant dads. Like, it's quite common, actually, that men in this kind of first discovery phase of we've just found out we're pregnant can experience panic attacks, symptoms of depression, anxiety that does interfere with what happens at home or what happens at work. And sometimes they can even have obsessive compulsive thoughts about, oh, what if I hurt the baby or what if I hurt my partner that are really, really quite troubling. And of course, that can lead into avoidant behavior to get away from that, which involves, you know, People often drink and they gamble and or they work out way too much. Yeah. (laughs) Pile themselves into work. I started to definitely get that. I I plunged into the fear. I plunged into the what am I doing? I fast forwarded past Mad Max 3 straight to Fury Road going, I am seriously Mm. bringing a baby into a world that will have no water. What the fuck Mm. am I doing? Yeah. It was really hard. It was was really tough actually. Was there an element... With you, though, because it's so early on and, you know, there's so many kind of bridges to cross before, you know, you get to the actual baby stage that was 
that made you put the brakes on? Because I did. I had a feeling of I had all those mixed emotions, but then I was always like, well, this is very early days. You know, we're not going to tell anyone for a couple of months, and so there is no point in me giving over to that because there's a lot of water to go under the bridge before the baby's actually here. Well, that would be you, Charlie. I am a professional <laughs> catastrophizer. Yeah, right. Okay. So, I, I, I have a creative mind, which is very helpful when I'm doing work or writing or trying to create something, but it's also very creative when it's just like... Envisioning the apocalypse. Exactly. And as far as I'm concerned, it was 100% real. Right. And it was very difficult. And that does kind of play into some other things that men kind of do when they're in this situation. You know, there was a, a study that showed that there's essentially three types of expectant fathers. One that, to avoid this, cheats or wants to cheat or has thoughts right. of wanting to cheat. One that desires his wife more than ever. Mm. And then there's one that just has no interest whatsoever in his wife. And it's important to know that these are these are kind of common things. But the most dominant one, the good news is the most dominant category that people fall into is the ones that desire their partners more than ever. And I most definitely fell into that category. As, as Audrey's body started to change, I was just so... I don't know, there was some weird hormonal trick that it played on my my brain and I just I was just obsessed with this beautiful creature that was transforming before my eyes. And so can I ask with you guys like was it a discussion that you had about we're going to try and have a kid? Was it something that you were like let's just see what happens or was it like a definite plan? Did you have a schedule? Was it one of those kind of things? Yeah, we had been trying for quite a while and I, I kind of wish in this time that I knew I've since found out the average couple, once they pull the goalie, once they stop using any kind of contraception, the average couple, and this is the average couple in their mid to late 30s, it takes nine months for them to conceive. Right. I wish I knew that. I wish Dadpot had been around. If only Dadpot had existed Charlie, back then, if only. someone could have told you. Because, like, Georgia, Audrey's daughter was already with us, and as far as I was concerned, we had, you know, family was great. There was no need. Everything was perfect. Life was magnificent yeah. with this little girl in our life. But then my youngest brother had a son, and I saw what it did for his relationship with his wife, and I was like, you know what? I, I really want to do that with Audrey. I want to experience this part with Audrey and, and experience the deepening of, of that relationship with this woman I love and have the two of us fall in love with this extra mm. human being. And so that's it. We, we pulled the goalie. But then as every month went by and the period came, it was like we were a marionette with cut strings, you know, it was just, oh, fuck. Yeah. And then, you know, you'd go, okay, and then two weeks later on ovulation day, it all becomes, you know what it was like? It's like getting pregnant in your, you're kind of scared when you're in high school PE. They, they tell mm. you, like, if you so much as think about taking your pants off in the same room as a woman, <laughs> she will get pregnant and then your life will be over and you may as well, you know, and so I was terrified, yeah. right? What they don't tell you is that when you're in your 30s, trying to get pregnant is like standing on the side of the Hume Highway between Sydney and Melbourne with a ping pong ball in your hand. Mm. Once a month, a car is going to speed by at 110 kilometers an hour, and your job is to try and get the ping pong ball through the passenger window and into the cup holder. And if you miss, don't worry, another one will be along in 28 days. <laughs> Mate, I am so sport deprived during COVID-19. I would pay to watch that. I, would, I think that should be... A new, I mean, the Olympics have been cancelled, but let's just make that a sport. We just get some cameras down on the highway watching people try and throw ping pong balls into moving vehicles. And then that was, it was really hard. But then yeah. like, and it's in a common story, Charlie, what happened is that 
much like yourselves, I was away on location and I hadn't seen Audrey in about five weeks. And then we spent a weekend away together to reconnect, so to speak. And what do you know? 10 days later, we had this meeting and Audrey peed on the stick. And as soon as we went, ah, fuck it, baby showed up. Well, let me hit you with a fact, Osha. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to La Trobe University, one in four pregnancies are unplanned. which is a quarter. So basically there is a, I remember a discussion with a lot of my mates who had babies before we did, they were going through similar type situations where it was like a a long-term attempt. And the words that ringed in my ears were a lot of the dads saying to me, look, if I had my time again, I would not have put so much pressure on us. I would not have, you know, put a calendar up on the wall and this is ovulation period because suddenly you you start heaping pressure upon pressure upon pressure. Now, of course, every situation is different, but I think there is something to be said about not putting pressure on. And the other thing is there is no perfect time to start a family, you know, whether or not you get pregnant or not. Those feelings of anxiety or am I ready or is this the right time? There's never a perfect time to start a family. There'll always be a reason to do it or to not. And I think for us, doing the IVF and sort of being very rigid and structured about the lead up to that and, you know, we had to change our lifestyle and, you know, uh, we just got very healthy in in the lead up to the fertilisation. From that moment, it was almost like it was a release because we'd gone back to just being a normal couple. You sort of, mm. not like lab rats, but you feel very much like, well, this is a job now, or this is kind of like going to the gym and doing a workout. Mm. You sort of lose a bit of your identity and the love and the passion. And I think there is an element about getting pregnant where you need to be out of balance. Like, of course, you need to have optimum ovulation and all that kind of stuff. But you also need to remember that you're, you're in love and that you're a couple and that these things can be fun as well. Yeah. But the pressure thing had a almost like a contraindication with us in that there was so much anxiety, so much pressure on conceiving or, or wanting to conceive, I ended up not feeling like sex at all. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, my God, if I go to bed at the same time as her, then we'll have to have sex. And I'm like, what if it doesn't happen? I'll just stay up later and do pretend I'm doing something or whatever, yeah. and I would avoid it because it was just too much pressure. There's a mate of mine that used to talk about he started to resent the tap on the shoulder. Mm. because it was like, come on, buddy, it's it's 3 p.m. This is my absolute peak ovulation moment right now. Come on, get home yeah, from work. Well, I Let's mean, go. When, you, when you see like nine and a half weeks or like any Prince music video or whatever, <laughs> there's no epilogue where suddenly like Prince is cradling his kid. Like it's all about let's go to the bedroom and get crazy. Like that's what it's about. And so those two things, you know, I think for good reason, you cannot hold those two thoughts simultaneously in your head, which is like let's go and have amazing sex and also I will be the father of a child because it's two different parts of the brain. So I think the more to be aware of what you're doing, but the more separation you can have between those two thoughts, the better, right? Yeah. Having said that, There was a moment during that weekend away when Audrey and I did have sex and I went, if it was ever going to be one, it was going to be that one. (laughs) (laughs) That was the one. That'll be it. That'll be the one that does the job. And sure enough, it did. Yeah, well, I do. Like, I wonder about my mum. You know, I'm one of nine kids. And there was obviously like a Catholic thing going on there with no contraception or anything like that. But- you know, there was no real discussion about planning yeah. for our parents. Well, for, at least for my parents, and uh, you know, it's very common in, in that older generation. Is just like, well, you just, 
you have sex and then <laughs> luck at the draw. And unfortunately or fortunately for my father, <laughs> he hit the jackpot nine times. Good God. Nine children. But I think at that stage too, it's like, you know, I always think about um, the discussion that Gemma and I had about starting a family. And I, in my memory, and maybe this is wrong, it was never ever really like a formal discussion where we had to sit down and talk about the future of our relationship or anything. But there was always an understanding that, look, this is something that we both want. Yeah. And if it happens, it happens. But I think you also need to ensure or have your relationship on sure enough footing that if that thing doesn't happen, that you'll be okay, that you can move on from this because the reality is for some people it, it doesn't happen and you know that's another thing that I sort of discovered while doing some research for this episode is how you relate to people who are maybe not having luck with getting pregnant and you know if especially it tends to happen in groups of friends that everyone starts getting pregnant around the same time and yeah so there was a, a website called Psych Central which had some tips for how you should behave when you are pregnant but you've got friends who are maybe trying to have kids but also can't get pregnant and yeah they say it's best not to keep your pregnancy a secret, like you're not doing anything um, for their benefit by not telling them. Yeah. But you want to limit the amount of baby talk uh-huh. you'd have in front of them, like planning and that kind of stuff. And also just be aware that your friendships may drift. For their sake, they may need to kind of spend some time away from you because it can be, like you were saying before, like a reminder of why isn't this working and then that just heaps extra pressure on them. I became acutely aware of that. There's people that my work that I knew were trying to conceive, bear in mind, like at a show like Bachelor, there's like 60 people on set. So, and we've worked together for about eight years and we're all quite close. And so this is not like, hey, day one, hi, are you having sex? You know, it was like, (laughs) we've known each other quite well, quite close. And so there was one that I knew trying to conceive and weren't having luck. Right. And as exactly what you're saying, Charlie, I remember being quite aware of like, oh, oh, this would be kind of shit if I'm running around going, it's fucking great, I knocked her up. Dip, 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 dip. Yeah. yeah, so I was quite careful in those points. Having said that, I do remember talking to my sister-in-law's brother and he and his wife had tried for a while and it turns out they couldn't conceive. And I remember him talking to me and he was sort of wistfully saying, you know, oh God, all we do now is just spend money on overseas trips and holidays <laughs> and like I've got two cars now. And then it's like, well, you know, there is some upside really to... Uh, to a being a childless couple. <laughs> I went for a bike ride this morning with uh, Luke Heggie, who was a guest on season one of Dad Pod, and uh, I rode past a 2020 Mustang 5.0 <laughs> and the custom number plate, which was driven by a guy in his 50s. He had salt and pepper hair, and it was like the whole thing. The fairing was all done up. It had neon lights on it, whatever. The number plate was no kids. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you can't pick up your Mustang and cuddle it and have it giggle at you. Uh... No, but your Mustang isn't going to vomit on you at three in the morning either. So, you know, swings and roundabouts, swings and roundabouts. <laughs> One more thing I, I would like to talk about, and, and that is, and yep. this is fascinating. I don't know if you've heard much about this, because, and I wouldn't mind talking to our, our guest about this today. Yeah. So maybe your sister-in-law's brother is also happy that he's not pregnant because... He made, and I discovered this recently, and I know that this was a factor coming into getting pregnant, that I, as a man, as a man in a relationship, was susceptible to contracting Couvard syndrome. Do you know what this is, Charlie? No. Couvard syndrome is also called a sympathetic pregnancy. What? Where the male partner experiences 
some of the same symptoms of pregnancy as the expectant mother. And these include major weight gain, altered hormone levels, morning sickness, and in extreme cases, labor pains. This is made up by some dude who just wants to eat whatever he wants and put on a bunch of weight. (laughs) Would you like to know the country where this syndrome is (laughs) most prominent? The US? No. Where? France. Oh, oh la la. Ah. Sacre bleu. I feel like I need to eat extra tonight. I'm eating for two. <laughs> you ah, can't my have fine the... wine and cheese. Is that I will have... You can't eat the cheese, but I can. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this blows my mind. It started out, they first started diagnosing it somewhere around in 1920s. Right. But it's a real thing. It's an actual thing. I had a research into it and uh, whether it's uh, caused by psychological, but hormone levels alter, Charlie. It's not, yeah. but, but they test their blood and their estrogen I levels. I, I just reckon even if it was like an involuntary thing and my hormones change, I just reckon Gemma would give me no sympathy. <laughs> I was the one saying I need extra pillows in bed and can you rub my feet, my back sore. She would just, she would not have a bar of it. I'm telling you right now. I don't care how medically verified this syndrome is. I would not have got away with it. I don't think so either. Audrey would probably look me in the eye and she goes, look, unless you are dilating to 10 centimetres out of your smallest orifice in your body, you can get fucked with your Couvard syndrome, as real and diagnosed as it may be. (laughs) But it is an actual fact that the male partner who is cohabitating with the pregnant mother can experience hormonal shifts, including differences in in cortisol and uh, testosterone and, and things like that. So bear in mind that just you being around the pregnant mother of your child will affect you hormonally as well, probably. Was this the plot of the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, Junior? (laughs) Was that just, was that COVID syndrome taken to the nth degree? COVID syndrome, not COVID syndrome. Very different. (laughs) Sorry about that. It's on the mind. Hey, mate. Ian Meadows, actor, writer, and Charlie Clawson doppelganger. How are you? Oh, that's a, wow. Oh, well taken. Welcome, <laughs> <mate>. <laughs> Welcome to Dad Pod. You're here with me and Osha. Thank you. Hey, Osha. Uh, good to see you, mate. And uh, yeah, you. I have Luke Jacobs as my Australian television doppelganger, but <laughs> gotcha. you have Charlie Clawson and, you know, yeah, I, I think you guys got the better deal, to be honest. Yeah, I actually hand in his headshot whenever I go for anything. So, <laughs> Would you say you haven't uh, worked in three years either then? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right, that's right. We're, yeah, we're, we're developing a buddy comedy where we play twins. So I'm not sure who's Danny and who's Arnie, but, but we'll let you decide. Uh, so, Ian, just letting you know, we've um, decided to look back at our fatherhood. You've got a, a boy who's uh, Jamison's 18 months now, is that right? 18 months, yep. So, well, Usher and I, we're now sort of six and seven months into fatherhood, and so we thought now that things have settled down a little bit, we'd take a, a look back to the very early start of not just fatherhood, but the pregnancy. So, we've been talking about how we found out that our partners were pregnant. What can you tell us about uh, when you found out that Ash was pregnant? I mean, how did you guys go with the memory? It just shocked me how either how bad my individual memory is or just how much passes by in, you know, the 18 months of having him alive as a human that I'm like, uh, remembering BC is, is, is quite tricky. What do I remember of when she told me? 
or when we found out together, I think there was just general sickness. It wasn't a shock. I remember it was a, it was more of a slow burn. There was no kind of uh, hard and fast moment, but there was the kind of very firm second line on the old uh, on the old pregnancy stick that yeah. I think was the catalyst. And then we went and got the the full check. And was this something that you had been planning, or was it something of a welcome surprise? You know what? A few years before, we actually we had a pregnancy that was a total surprise. And when Ash told me about it, it was the, one of those moments I've been preparing for since you know I was a teenage boy, and the you know the, the shock and horror was ready. I was always <laughs> ready for that to come out. Yeah. And, and the way I knew it was a really good situation was I was just. You know, I've been planning for all these years or, or thinking that it would be something I would be terrified about. And actually, I was, I was thrilled about it. And sadly, you know, as, as often is the case, we lost that pregnancy. But the nice thing to come out of it was both of us just kind of really knew that it's something we, we wanted. And so we never really, we didn't plan from that point on. But from that point on, we felt like we'd be happy whenever it happened. Yeah, we, we're just we're talking about that the mix of emotions you can get because Osha's experience was a little different to mine. Mine was kind of like a general feeling of well, Gemma always accuses me of being a fence sitter that I have a very moderated reaction to everything. I don't get I, I experience neither highs nor lows. <laughs> you know, I am the, yeah. I'm the human human valium, but I do remember at the time for me it was more of a kind of I was happy of course, but it was a very measured response because well, there's a lot of water to go under the bridge so far. So I'm happy for now, but let's sort of see how it unfolds. And Osho, well, your experience is different, right? Oh, yeah. And I, I was instantly at the same time, it was like I was down the gym and I'd picked up a, a dumbbell in each hand of equal weight. One was excitement and one was terror. <laughs> <laughs> When you did see those solid lines on the stick, having had, as you mentioned, the, the fairly common experience of losing uh, a pregnancy, how did you go about facing this situation the second time around? It is, yeah. I think I was really excited to have Bub and, it, you know, it's a really good test of knowing you're in the right relationship. Mm. And so that was all really lovely. I think it was also just, just the state of the world, as I'm sure we all feel, as I'm sure our parents felt, you know, whether you're going through the, you know, having a kid through the Cuban Missile Crisis or, you know, people now being pregnant during a pandemic. Mm. There's always stuff that you can be terrified about. And so, we're still only a couple of years into, or a year into Trump by then as well. And climate change has always just kind of been, you know, I guess for all of us, but mm. the existential ringing in our ears. So I had not gone to see uh, like a like counselor, whatever. Mm. But I thought, I'm just going to give that a go. I'll, I'll go see if there's got any, any, uh, any tricks for me. And that was pretty positive. Yeah, that was, I, I had the same response Ian too it's like I, I've seen counsellors on and off over the years but I hadn't for a while but after the sort of my initial blase attitude towards you know the pregnancy and the reality started to settle in I did feel myself kind of like just drifting into kind of negative thoughts or you know paranoid thoughts yeah. sometimes and I remember talking to my counsellor and I was saying, look, the number one anxiety for me, I feel, is the actual process of labour, like seeing Gemma in distress. I just, yeah. I've, I've never been around anything like that. I just don't know how I'll handle that. And he said to me, well, what's your experience of, of seeing labour? And I'm like, well, in the movies, you know, when someone's you know, in the back of a cab rushing to a hospital and they're screaming sure. and doctors are yelling and he's gone, right, he's gone, so your total experience of labour is what you've seen in movies and television. I was like, yeah, and he's like, and you're an actor and a writer and so you know that they're showing you the most dramatic version of all those kind of <laughs> the events. <worst. laughs> exactly. And it was just it was just such a simple bit of advice, but it immediately was like, yeah, of course, like I've just come into yeah. this from a completely wrong point of view. Yeah. Whilst 
that is obviously very possible, and plenty of people have those stories. Um, it's not the complete shame total of, of, of uh, pregnancy and, and birth stories. And that was that. You know, that was the other thing. It's just you kind of you become so aware, don't you? Of like everyone who's had a baby in that period, particularly before you start telling anyone about it. Like yeah. you haven't told anyone yet that you're pregnant. You're kind of waiting to see how it goes. I'm not sure what, whether it's the universe or whether you just become really attuned to it. But every kind of good and bad birth story, <laughs> I, I just vividly remember every experience people were kind of passing on to us was particularly um, vivid. Yeah, and I also found too that the majority of what people wanted to tell me were horror stories. <laughs> I was like, yeah, totally. I would never do that. Like, in fact, you know, since we've even started this podcast, I've sort of made a point of, because, I, you know, we we're very fortunate to have a very good birth experience. And so I've just made a point of being that evangelist because I don't know if, you know, mainly men, I don't know if they thought they were doing me a favour, but I'm like, why are you filling my head with all this shit? Yeah. Just lie to me a little. I know, I feel like the, the world must kind of swing between people going, you know, having horrible experiences and going, why didn't everyone pretend this was amazing? Why didn't someone tell me the truth about, you know, how awful this can be? And so then, like, you know, art reflects, you know, how awful it can kind of be. And, and then, you know, it swings back the other way where you're like, oh, just, it can actually be, it can be okay, don't worry. Yeah, 100%. I was just, you know, reflecting on both of you deciding to go and see a counsellor after conception. Yeah. And uh, as someone who's, I've been seeing counsellors pretty much nonstop for the last five or six years, to be honest. There's actually uh, one in the room next to Osh right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's great. <laughs> anyway, the idea that a lot of men may not have ever considered that, but you know, it's this time when if your, your partner, your female partner gets pregnant, you'll expect her to stop drinking alcohol, stop eating non-processed cheese, not eat, you know, any kind of thing that could put her at risk, trying to be in the best possible health she can be to bring this baby into the world. Why should you do anything any different? Your role should be, what can I get out of the operating system? What bugs can I work out to make sure that when baby comes into the world, I too am tip top? And it sounds like it's the smart thing to do. Did you, Ian, did you find that it was overall beneficial and you were able to be there better for your son? Oh, absolutely. You, you, you nailed it too. You know, it's that tip that, you know, you get the hot water bottles, you make the food, you do all those things, but you are absolutely the support team mm. whilst uh, your partner climbs the Everest that is sort of uh, pregnancy and, and then childbirth and then breastfeeding beyond that, which is a whole other story if they, if they can do that. But yeah, you, you're right. It was all about prepping myself. And I was sort of finding myself in these places of anxiety and I had different, you know, levels of anxiety and, and my own sort of dark moments as, as we kind of all do throughout life. But it was that particular kind of, you know, worrying about the future, worrying about climate change or Trump or whatever whatever it is, it was, it was just getting particularly useful to the anxiety that I was kind of feeling around that. And kind of just chatting to someone, and luckily he, he was really great, this guy, and he did recommend it. But it's just about kind of sorting through your own thoughts and realising that the kind of being able to, you know, have a, have a mirror held up to yourself and to process all that yourself, I think, is, is so useful. And it kind of led, it felt like it was this really lovely transition period where I kind of could move from that, from the anxiety about worrying about that stuff to then realising the, the kind of gift that my son has given me is, you know, the sense of, well, fuck it, it's happening. Like, there's no point being anxious about it. You, it just gives you a reason to kind of make the world, you know, better in whatever way you can for your kid because you've got no other there's no other option so it gave a real sense of purpose for that stuff and there was much more calm around all those anxieties which is um, yeah which, which I didn't expect which was a lovely kind of outcome of 
Mate, you've put that in such a clear and concise way. It's it's very, very similar to what we share some similar worries and my probably far worse, <laughs> more impactful on my brain. Uh, my <laughs> mum could definitely sense. she Before my mum died, she was able to meet Audrey and she took one look at this beautiful kind of beacon of kindness and she pulled me aside into the kitchen and she says, what are you doing? Don't wait. Have a baby with this beautiful woman, and I said, "Oh, but I'm worried that the world's gonna, you know, it's on fire and be underwater, and people be at war." And, she, and my mom had been a refugee in the end of World War II. She had fled Lithuania, and she spent a few years on the road, and you know, horrible living life in refugee camps. And she said to me, "We were on the road. We were this column of people just walking through Europe for years." She goes, "In the middle of war, bombs falling, planes strafing us, you know, sleeping on the ground in refugee camps." She said, people still started families, yeah. even in the uncertainty of we can't go back to our own country. We don't know where we're going to go. Mm. They still found time to be intimate. They still found time to make families. And exactly what you just said, she goes, because when you have that kid, you're like, well, now I've got to make the world better. Now I've got to help be a part of fixing this. And it was that yeah. message that you've just described, which gave me the hope of like, maybe it is going to be okay because now I've really only got one job, and that is to make the world as good as I possibly can be for this kid. I mean, that's pretty amazing. I, you know, you do think about it, don't you? And you think about it being in lockdown and the privilege that we kind of get at the moment, you know, having whatever challenges that brings up for whatever age child you, you have to kind of look after. You sort of think about that in the context then of fleeing your life and, or being in a camp somewhere or being under genuine threat, and it's pretty incredible <laughs> What parents think I kind of, yeah, can Yeah, there's nothing that forces you to be mindful more than a child that needs you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's really no other option. Awesome, Ian. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, you were our first guest on season two of Dad Pod. I hope you and Ash and Jamison are all very safe and uh, keeping your hands clean. Thanks for coming on the show, mate. We'll speak soon. Washing up the storm. Thanks, mate. You guys too. <laughs> See you, brother. Easy. Thank you. Fucking hell, man. He looks so much like him. It's not even <laughs> that's, funny. That's the only reason I got him on. It's like it's not a visual medium. No one can confuse us. <laughs> we actually went to a football game uh, last year, back when you could still go to public events, and someone took a photo of us and put it on their social media, and I read the comments underneath, and there was about half a dozen people going, oh, I actually thought this was the same person. I thought the guy from Home and Away had been an offspring, but turns out no. <laughs> Super, super good. As we wrap up episode one of uh, season two, two stripes on the stick, now what? It's time to visit the Dad Pod Hall of Fame. A couple of dads on the wall here in this this glimmering, beautiful room that we have. Alf Stewart from Home and Away, Dan Connor, Bandit from Bluey, some of the great dads of popular culture that have proxy raised us through the power of film and television. Charlie, who's entering the Hall of Fame for episode one of season two? Well, I thought I'd go to a different tack on this one. We're going to go to one of the most popular shows ever made, uh, The Simpsons. But oh. the obvious choice would be to go for Homer. But we're not going to go to Homer. We're going to go across the fence to his neighbour, Ned Flanders. What a dad. What a great dad. Dedicated family man, a good neighbour, keeps bloody fit. You've seen the streetcar named Desire episode. He gets his shirt off and he's ripped. Looks incredible in a onesie ski suit. <laughs> oh, yeah, stupid sexy Flanders. <laughs> He makes healthy snacks for his kids. Who can forget Flanders nachos, which is just cucumbers with a dollop of cottage cheese on top? <laughs> Lends his neighbour tools. Doesn't matter how long Homer doesn't give them back for. Just kindly, there you go. You can have them. And has a great bloody mo. And as we know, 
All dads need a mow. You can see I'm sporting one here. This is the I've grown this mow just so people know I'm not Ian Meadows, <laughs> just to distinguish us. <laughs> He's a great dad to Rod and Todd. Yeah. Even in the later years when they were, you know, befell and befallen. Befallen when befell uh, wid- with, wid- widowed with tragedy. What happens to Ned after that? I mean, that's probably where I stopped watching The Simpsons. Did he remarry? <laughs> maybe, maybe we've endorsed Ned Flanders. When we find out in seasons eight through twenty six or something, he's turned into a raving sociopath. Look, this is Ned Flanders from seasons one to eight of The Simpsons. <laughs> Just a little caveat. Look, he is the great dad. He is the antithesis of Homer, and his endless boundless ability to figure... You know, in many ways, I think he's a better dad to Homer than he is to Rod and Todd because he's Mm. got so much latitude and so much forgiveness for Homer and so much kindness and empathy to this man who's so willingly mean to him (laughs) all the time coveting his wife, etc. Yeah. But he's still there. He's a great dad. Yeah, he's a yin to Homer's raging yang. <laughs> raging yang. That was a terrible film. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ned Flanders, Dad Pod salutes you. Absolutely. Well, as we come to the end of episode one, Charlie, uh, it's, it's been a lot to take in. I did want to say very quickly on uh, episode two, uh, we are going to basically dive right into the idea of to tell or not to tell. Because as we heard uh, Ian describe earlier, you know, there are complications that can happen with any pregnancy. So some people make the choice to not to disclose and some people make the choice to. I told and I believe you didn't. So Mm -hmm. we're going to dive right into that. But there was one thing I did want to talk about. We've talked a bit about mental health on this show today. We've talked a bit about the anxieties that can face a dad as as soon. And it is, you know, there's a lot happening. Your entire life will now change forever. It is no longer going to be about you till the end of your days. That's really it. The narcissism party is over. It's now about the baby forever until you die. So it, it's, it's a big shift. <laughs> but it's great. It's brilliant and it's worth it. I would say that if you are struggling, if you are having a, a difficult time and you're wondering how are you going to cope, because there's a lot of stuff that you, you can worry about, try to focus, if you can, try to focus on the, the one thing you know you're really, really good at. All right? It might be... You know, I make the best spreadsheets of anyone at work or I can make a fantastic spaghetti bolognese or, you know what, I keep my lawn really clean or I'm a really good friend or I'm a really good brother or or whatever. You know, everyone's got one, at least one thing they're really competent at and and focus on that and understand that you learned how to do that. You knew how to do, you know how to do that better than any other thing you know how to do. You are therefore capable of learning how to do things very well you will also learn how to do this and it's going to be okay. A much more coarse version of that is, look, there's heaps of fuckwits out there that are dads. You're not going to be any worse than them, so don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you next week. Go to bed. 